Once there are deadlines in place, there usually is a sense that they can pull things together, but it sort of feels like a car with the bumper duct taped on, and it's like, how much longer can this duct tape hold? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, December 5th. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston to talk about the growing sense of fatalism and negativity on Capitol Hill after a wild and exhausting year, and why the bad vibes are threatening a new round of funding for the war in Ukraine. And later, Eric Gardner joins Ben Landy to discuss a Russian billionaire legal saga shaking up the art world. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Abby Livingston, who I'm told, I'm not going to blow you up here if you're, if you're not proud of this, if you're not psyched, but apparently after this recording, you are going to a new documentary premiere about Cary Grant. Yes, Swoon. You're a big yes. Cary Grant fan? Uh, he's probably my second favorite after Paul Newman, so yes. Oh, Paul Newman is my fashion icon. That dude, he could nail every outfit. Uh, what What is this documentary, though? Uh, I don't know too much, but his uh, one of his ex-wives who's still around, Diane Cannon, will be there. And I have a controversial opinion. I think Cary Grant was a better on-screen pairing with Katherine Hepburn than Spencer Tracy was. So Okay. Okay. All yeah. right. Powers of B listeners, the puck readers, at uh, Abby Livingston, uh, if you disagree uh, <laughs> with her take. So, Abby, before you, uh, you know, get all swoony with Cary Grant... I want to talk to you about Congress, um, the fatalism sort of percolating right now around Ukraine funding. But we, before we get into that, we haven't really talked since George Santos was removed from Congress. I think he was only the sixth person ever to get kicked out of Congress. You know, this wouldn't have happened had Republicans not lined up to do it. They were sick of the embarrassment. We did a podcast about this beforehand. But since then, they made fun of him on SNL. Uh, there's an HBO series in the works suddenly. Uh, you know, there's been a book written about him already. Uh, as of this taping, he just joined Cameo 
If uh, anyone wants uh, George Santos cameo uh, to give somebody for Christmas as a gag, but he's also like he's drifting into this like pop icon territory. Like he's like trying to turn himself into like like a queenie gay icon a little bit. But after he got voted out, like what <laughs> was their jubilation on Capitol Hill? Like what were congressmen saying after this happened? Yeah, I mean, it's I think what's been interesting is and over the weekend I was around some New York Democrats and there's not members but in the the New York Democratic world and there's still a very good faith strong good faith debate over whether it was appropriate to oust him and not wait until he was criminally convicted mm-hmm. and a lot of this circles back to like you said there have been six congressional expulsions I looked them up before we chatted three relate to the Civil War one relates to the Abscam scandal, which is what the movie American mm-hmm. Hustle is based on. And the other involved uh, James Traficant, who among his in- uh, offenses included bribery, racketeering, and possibly the worst toupee in congressional history. So most members don't let it, who are in trouble, don't let it get to this point. They resign mm-hmm. before expulsion. And I think just my larger takeaway beyond... You know, there was the undercurrent of debate about whether it's okay. you know, could this be used as a weapon to expel people you just don't like? Well, that's that's hard because you need a two thirds majority, which they did get on Friday. And the other is how thin the Republican margin is right now, especially as there was an Axios report that Kevin McCarthy's thinking about resigning from Congress, which is different from a retirement, a resignment or resigning is you leave immediately, which would put more pressure on Republican vote counters. But all of that combined, I think it's just this is just the reality show of Congress playing out. And this sort of had a series finale feeling to it of him getting voted off the island. But I do think we need to take a (laughs) breath and just look at how what a serious, serious uh, thing it is for Congress to throw one of their own out. Yeah, no, it's a big it's a big, big deal. And thank you for bringing up Jim Trafficamp, by the way. I, I mean, that guy was that guy was a legend. Beam me up, Trafficant. When he, uh, I think he went to prison. Um, he went home to Youngstown, and I forget what year it was, but some like local like sub shop or pizza shop in, in Youngstown made "Welcome Home Jimbo" T-shirts, uh, and I ordered one. <laughs> I still have it somewhere, and I think you can buy. Uh, beam me up Youngstown t-shirts on the internet, according to my quick Googling. Um, that guy, for people who don't know, legendary hair, yes. One time made like a, a fart joke uh, when a bunch of cameras were in his face, like in the early 2000s, like telling people that he would emit a fart that would uh, register 8.6 on the Richter scale if like the press didn't get out of his face. I mean, his like capacity for quotes and attention was amazing, but nothing compared to George Santos, that's for sure. So you mentioned on our last conversation about this uh, last week that this opens up a special House election in a very competitive district now in New York. I don't think we have a date for that yet, but it's going to be important because of what you just said. Republicans only have a narrow, narrow, narrow majority. Related to this, this is the topic I wanted to get into with you today, and you've got some reporting about this in the Best and the Brightest newsletter that came out yesterday. This is a Senate and a House thing. Ukraine funding. It feels like, you know, at least according to some of the members that you talk to, it doesn't feel like there's going to be a new funding package coming through before they break for Christmas. And that feels like pretty bad news if you are the country of Ukraine. 
So they're trying to tie together because it's going to be so hard to pass it. Ukraine funding, Israel funding and border security. And it appears to be falling apart. This little window of Thanksgiving to Christmas was supposed to be focused on this issue. And as you can tell, last week, the entire Capitol Hill world was consumed with George Santos. And next week, it looks like Republicans are going to amp up impeachment against Biden and possibly Secretary Mayorkas. So it's sort of diminishing in in relevance, which is amazing. But what caught my eye today was Chris Murphy, who's a Democrat from Connecticut and a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, has been leading negotiations with Democrats. And he said it had all but broken down. He got some pushback from Senate Republicans. And then his frequent negotiating partner, John Cornyn, intervened and the debate started playing out publicly, the debate about the debate, basically. And so If these two guys are not on the same page, this is a very strong warning sign. Um, I will always defer to my our colleague, Julia Ioffe, on all things Ukraine and Capitol Hill. But from the angle of political brains and people chewing on it from that direction, this is very ominous and grave. Hmm. And one reason you cite for this is in just your phone calls with with members and staffers around the Hill is this sense of exhaustion, like the stalemate is there, like in part because people are burned out. Uh, You mentioned, uh, it may sound callous, but there's such a sense of hopelessness around Capitol Hill that it borders on fatalism. This isn't just about, you know, Ukraine funding or like negotiating a a border security bill. It feels larger than that. Is this just like since January 6th, like people just hate being on Capitol Hill? Is it that this year specifically with, you know, all the Kevin McCarthy drama, for example, that was exhausting? Or is this just people are tired and ready to go home for the holidays like they are every year? Uh, there was this sense in the summer with the continued back and forth with Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, just sort of the silliness and members were ready to go home in August. But I think October with Kevin McCarthy's ouster has really broken a lot of members and staffers. And I, I think it's what I would probably also add is I'm sensing a lack of confidence in the Congress's ability to get things done. Now, once there are deadlines in place, there usually is a sense that they can pull things together, but it sort of feels like a car with the bumper duct taped on, and it's like, how much longer can this duct tape (laughs) hold? It's nothing specific. It's just a larger sense I have from calls of just a lack of confidence in the Congress. That is dark, Abby. That is pretty dark. Um, And and you, you punctuate your reporting by mentioning... How many retirements they've been? I mean, like you have people like Katie Porter, who's like stepping down so she can run for higher office, running for the Senate, but also Ken Buck and, you know, Jennifer Wexton and then old old people like Anna Eshoo. Um, You know, can we expect to hear about more retirements, you know, as we head into the new year? We will see. But I think the thing that's most interesting right now is political junkies like me start freaking out about retirements because it usually means one side knows they're losing and incumbents worry they're going to lose re-election and it's not worth even running anymore and people in safe seats worry that they won't be in the majority anymore we're not seeing those here this is more these vacancies are either about people being sick of being in the house of representatives and wanting to go run for something else or just flat out i'm done and i don't want to be in the house of representatives again and i just think Mm -hmm. it's a really jonathan martin's written about this quite a bit. It's a really, really troubling sign coming out of the house. All right, Abby, thank you for your insights. As always, we'll see if we can get any notes of holiday hope coming out of Capitol Hill, but it doesn't sound likely. Hey, go enjoy your film 
about Archibald Leach and report back to us next time. Thank you. Thanks, Peter, for having me. When we come back, Eric Gardner is here to talk about some drama in the art world. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life at alma we know the connection between you and your therapist matters but if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming that's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you when you browse their online directory you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing so you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner. Great to have you. Oh, wonderful to be with you. Eric, one thing I love about your reporting is that you're always digging into these fascinating legal battles that have been hidden from view or may have slipped from the headlines but are sort of playing out right under our noses. One of those cases is this saga involving, I'm going to try and get his name right, Dmitry Rabolilev. He's a, he's a Russian billionaire fertilizer magnate who bought this Leonardo da Vinci painting, Salvador Mundi, back in 2013 for like $127 million. He then flipped it to Mohammed bin Salman for almost three times that amount. I remember this case because there were a lot of questions at the time about the authenticity 
of that painting. But there's also this whole other legal twist that I had no idea about, which is that Dimitri, let's just call him by his first name, Dimitri is suing Sotheby's, the auction house, for allegedly conspiring with the art dealer who brought him this painting to trick him into overpaying for it. Talk to me about what the backstory is here, both with Rabolovlev, uh, th- this painting, and what's going on with this legal suit. Yeah, well, Dmitry Rabolovlev, you know, built one of the world's biggest private collections. I mean, we're talking about works from Picasso and and Mondrian and, and and just on and on. And this happened all over a decade. And he did it primarily with the assistance of a Swiss art dealer named Yves Bouvier, who ran a free port in Geneva. And, uh, you know, these two guys became so close, Dimitri and Yves. They attended soccer matches and art museums and birthday celebrations together. And it went on and on until Salvador Mundi came, came onto the scene. And then, you know, the thing exploded and their relationship shattered. What apparently happened was that Yves Bouvier had been finding out what paintings Rebolovlev uh, wanted and began buying those paintings without telling him and then selling it to his client. So he was able to mark up the price, tens of millions for each painting. And, you know, now uh, Dmitry Rebolovlev has been in court for, you know, more than a half decade saying that he overpaid for these paintings by, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And he's not just been in court in America, but, you know, he's been in court, you know, all around the world in in Switzerland, in Monaco. And there's been criminal prosecutions over this, civil cases over over this. Uh, It's quite a a legal morass. But, uh, you know, what's really, really interesting here and, and the thing that like most people might have overlooked is that this case in New York is going to trial in a matter of weeks. It's going to trial in the first few days of the new year, and we're going to learn a lot. Yeah, it's, it's hard to feel bad for this guy when he, you know, he also made like a 200 million plus dollar profit when he sold this thing to MBS. But okay, he, he alleges that he was cheated, that he was duped. Maybe I'm just being naive here and, and don't understand how the art market works. But how are Bouvier's tactics, alleged tactics, any different than like, you know, how Larry Gagosian has operated? I mean, locating artworks for one of the clients that you know they want, buying it for one price and selling it for another. Did that violate some kind of agreement these two guys had with each other? Yeah, well, according to Dimitri, the two were operating on a commission agreement that, you know, Eves was supposed to be his agent, that, you know, he was going out there negotiating the price, scouting stuff, and you know, basically he was going to get a percent of each, of each sale. But, uh, you know, what, what's really alleged is that Eves got pretty greedy and started doing things in secrets where he would acquire the, the pieces and then mark it up to, for, for huge amounts. I mean, I guess it's a matter of degree. Um, I suppose there's a lot of shadiness in the art market and, and one can question, well, if, if this happens, well, why isn't this kosher? But, uh, you know, so far, Yves Bouvier has uh, averted criminal convictions in other countries. Um, and so, so yeah, he contends he did nothing wrong. He contends that, you know, there wasn't any sort of agency agreement. Uh, it was never in writing. So, you know, that's going to be for the jury to decide. And, uh, you know, as for, for, you know, what happens elsewhere in, you know, the art community, uh, you know, I, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about how art world practices work at this trial. 
Possibly some of the more damning evidence that you reported on when you were writing about this earlier this week is that apparently Sotheby's vice president of private sales had allegedly worked with Bouvier to delete the record of his purchase of the Da Vinci painting from its provenance. I, I guess, you know, was the idea to trick our, our Russian friend, Dmitry? Um, and has Sotheby's contested that? Yeah, so so what happens is that, you know, when a big painting like this uh, is about to be bought, the buyer, uh, in this case, Dmitry Rybovlev, will want a valuation of the work. And so Sotheby's is not just in the business of, you know, of providing an auction, but they're, you know, kind of like an investment bank. They'll provide analyst reports about the worth of a painting and, and its, you know, history, who owned it and, and such. So before the painting got to Rybovlev, he was working with Bouvier on these documentations, and that entailed working with Sotheby's and uh, Sotheby's VP of private sales was allegedly doing things to kind of manipulate the valuation of, of the painting. One can question whether or not this is, you know, kind of material evidence that, that will, you know, uh, influence the jury, but, you know, it was enough for a judge looking at it in a big ruling in March to allow this case to go to trial. So I, I think that it's going to be one of the you know, major aspects of the proceeding ahead. So what else is Sotheby's arguing in their defense? And and what do you expect from this case when it goes to trial? Sure. Well, you know, I think the most interesting aspect of, of this whole case is kind of the, the counteroffensive that Sotheby's is raising. They're, you know, saying like, hey, look at this guy, Dimitri. He, he's made billions of dollars in his career. You don't get to that state without being savvy. And, you know, so how can it possibly be true that this guy was just relying on someone else? Didn't he do any due diligence himself? Wouldn't he have, have you know, looked at everything with a, with a close microscope? How is it that he went a dozen years before figuring out this supposed fraud? And, you know, why isn't the agreement between him and, and Bouvier in writing? So I think they're going to, you know, like really like doubt the story that's being told. As for what happens, uh, you know, I don't, you know, necessarily know the answer to that. I think like jury trials are incredibly hard to predict. And this one deals with a lot of nuance. Uh, it's going to be, you know, a contest between narratives. And this is one that I would hardly want to predict what, what happens. I, I, you know, I do think that, though, that it's going to, you know, ring really loudly in, in the art community. There might not be any recent headlines about this, but pretty much everyone in the art world knows about this controversy. And I, I think it, you know, may influence future art sales and, and, and all that. Yeah. And by the way, one of the, the funny footnotes to this, you, you reported that uh, Dimitri's legal team is trying to argue before the judge that the jury should not hear any kinds of words or phrases about him that might prejudice them against him, like referring to the fact that he's a Russian oligarch or the fact that he's uh, from Mother Russia. The, the legal team says those are basically slurs in today's political environment. Yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting and kind of funny uh, when you think about it, but it also highlights the fact that this case is taking place in the midst of conflict between Russia and Ukraine, where 
rich Russians have become kind of distasteful figures uh, the world wide over to the extent where just even Dmitry Rubolovlev's presence in the New York courtroom to me I think is going to be quite interesting and stunning and something that you certainly hardly ever see. So I so I think that you know from a from a kind of a geopolitical perspective this case has also got to you know attract a lot of interest. Yeah, it's hard to uh, it's hard to root for anybody in this thing. Eric, gotta leave it there. Thank you as always for coming by. This is fascinating. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.